Hello, I'm Connor Pope, and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, why are people turning to an anti-parasite drug to treat COVID-19? You've probably heard a lot about ivermectin over the last couple of months. In the US, a drug called ivermectin is being touted as a way of treating and preventing COVID-19. It's replaced hydroxychloroquine as the new experimental wonder drug treatment for COVID-19. It is a medication that has been around a while, but is now the subject of quite a bit of controversy when it comes... Some people are calling it nothing more than a horse dewormer. Literally, people won't take the vaccine because they're super suspicious of that, but they're taking horse deworming medication that they're buying at a feed store? For COVID? Others believe it's the silver bullet, a low-cost and efficient way of treating the symptoms of the virus. Ivermectin has efficacy in shortening the duration of disease, shortening the time that there are symptoms, and in reducing mortality. It's been gaining massive popularity in the US, and even in this part of the world, it's beginning to gain traction too. There were over 5,000 units of the drug seized by health authorities over the last year. This month, the first Irish person was hospitalised for using the drug to treat their COVID-19 symptoms. Although it's safe to use in humans and in animals, the dosage is very, very important. If you use that same dosage in humans, that can lead to a lot of toxicity and a lot of problems. How did this drug, which was invented more than 30 years ago, suddenly start to be considered as an alternative treatment for COVID-19? And just what are the risks involved in taking it? Dr. Gerald Barry is a professor in UCD's School of Veterinary Science. Gerald, can you tell me what exactly is ivermectin and where did the drug come from? So it's a really interesting story. So ivermectin is a drug, um, well, it was originally called avermectin, or at least that was its parent drug. Um, It was found originally by a scientist in Tokyo, in Japan. They had a, a link with a pharmaceutical company called Merck. And The story goes, apparently, this scientist um, would carry a plastic bag with him wherever he went um, because he was obsessed with soil and bacteria growing in soil. And he was on a golf course one day because he played a lot of golf and he picked up a soil sample from the golf course. Anyway, he went back to the lab and started to culture the bacteria in the soil because soil is full of different microorganisms. And in collaboration with that pharmaceutical company, Merck, they isolated a chemical called avermectin from the soil that seemed to have anti-parasitic properties. So that means basically that there was a chemical being produced by a bacteria in the soil that actually had the ability to kill parasites. And they refined it slightly and made it a little bit better. And that is then what we now term ivermectin. And that was carried out roughly in in the late 70s when research was a little bit freer and you were allowed to, I suppose, go on a bit of an exploratory hunt for new and and unusual things to an extent. And of course, these are the kind of studies that lead to amazing new discoveries like ivermectin, which is and was and still is actually a bit of a wonder drug. It's it's up there in in, in the greatest discoveries in terms of drug chemistry, you know, alongside things like penicillin in terms of the impact that it's had. And it was initially used to treat animals. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So Merck were a pharmaceutical company that typically developed drugs for animals and of course parasites infect animals as well as humans and so there was the main driver of the development of the drug was to help a whole host of different farm animals that were being infected by different parasites that was you know causing disease in those animals 
affecting productivity. And so that's what originally the drug was developed for. And actually the main driver of the research was a gentleman from Donegal, a guy called Bill Campbell. My own interest in parasites has, has been very, but mostly been focused on the treatment of parasitic diseases. And it's only in recent years that I realized that that actually uh, goes back in a way to my early teenage years when I was growing up in this town in County Donegal. Uh, who, of course, subsequently got a Nobel Prize for its discovery. And he noticed that although it was really effective against animals, um, it could potentially be applied to humans because, of course, very similar types of parasites were also infecting humans. And one of the ways it's used in humans, the thing that effectively won at the Nobel Prize, is to treat river blindness. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so river blindness is a parasite and it's an incredibly devastating parasite. It's a worm, basically a spaghetti-like worm that infects um, a black fly, bites and infects humans with this parasite. And that parasite will lay eggs inside you and the little eggs will hatch inside a human and, and it's quite a nasty little thing. What they'll do is they'll burrow into the skin underneath the surface of the skin and basically move throughout the body. And, you know, the, the kind of symptoms associated with it, incredibly intense itching, of course, you can imagine the irritation that it would cause, but it also starts to cause nodules and can cause blistering on the skin. And it can also affect areas of the body, such as the eyes, for example. And that's why it's termed river blindness, because this fly tends to hang out around rivers and, and stagnant bodies of water. And then, of course, blindness, because it can infect and damage the eyes. <laughs> This corn farmer began to lose his sight three years ago. Now he is blind. He's on medication, but still has such severe itching that he can no longer sleep through the night. He hasn't slept for a year? Yes, he can sleep for maybe for three hours. It's a really devastating disease. It was causing you know millions of people to lose their sight or to be infected. And ivermectin came on the market in the late 70s, as I say, and was then brought out in, for humans uh, around the late 80s, around 1988. It started to be used against river blindness and a couple of other parasitic infections. And it's estimated to have probably been used by hundreds of millions of people at this stage and is actually leading and probably will lead to the eradication of river blindness in the vast majority of populated areas of the world. And already there are countries free of river blindness because of ivermectin. So incredibly effective drug, as I say, a real wonder drug in certain very specific circumstances. So how did this wonder drug become associated with the treatment of COVID-19? So if you remember back to, I suppose, the beginning of the pandemic, when we think about kind of early 20, uh, what was it, 2020, of course, hard to remember now really when it started, but it was around February, March 2020 when we all started to get very badly affected by this. And there was a huge drive, of course, to try and figure out what the virus was, what it was doing, and also how do we treat it. And so labs across the world, high containment laboratories, brought the virus, started growing it up in the lab, and then started to basically take uh, all categories of drugs that were known to be um, available to use in humans, not necessarily antiviral drugs, but a whole host of different drugs and different families of drugs, just to see if any of them would have any impact on the virus. And so it was a little bit of a scattergun approach because there was an element of panic, I suppose, at the beginning of the pandemic. Nobody knew how it was going to go. 
Um, and a paper came out uh, relatively early in the pandemic from an Australian group, and they showed that of all the different drugs they had tested, a whole host of them seemed to have an effect on the virus in the lab. So this is where you're taking the virus, putting it in a, effectively a Petri dish, and you're treating it with the drug, and you're asking the question, well, in the presence of that drug, can the virus continue to to damage cells? Can it continue to make copies of itself? And one of those drugs that was in this trial was ivermectin. And that was really the first signal uh, from a, a well-characterized study in the laboratory that showed that there was a potential use for ivermectin um, against SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID-19. So the trial was promising. Have there been more trials ongoing in connection with ivermectin and COVID-19? Yeah, of course, on the back of that, people got very excited because ivermectin, as I say, has been used in humans for many years now. It's been shown when used correctly, it can be safe um, and it's very cheap and it's readily available. So people saw this as a real potential. So on the back of those laboratory trials carried out in Petri dishes, people started to use it in clinical trials in humans. And it, it, to be honest, the the standard of trials that have been carried out has been a little bit erratic to a point. A lot of them have been observational trials whereby basically people have been using them in a relatively uncontrolled fashion and observationally reporting benefits or anecdotally reporting benefits. Um, and then there was a trial carried out of approximately 400 people in a study carried out by uh, some Egyptian doctors, and they reported huge benefits of this drug. They were reporting something like 90% recovery when using ivermectin in people that were infected by SARS-CoV-2. You know, 90% is absolutely phenomenal. And any drug that was having that impact should be immediately rolled out as, as quickly as possible. But almost as soon as the paper was published, a question mark started to be raised about it, about the, the way the trial was carried out, the data that was reported, the robustness of the data, the way the statistics were calculated, a whole host of issues, to be quite honest. And as people looked more closely at it, they basically came to realise that the study was not carried out properly um, and there were major flaws with it. And in fact, in recent months, that report or that publication has now been withdrawn because of the amount of flaws with it. And so we have to disregard that study, basically. But on the back of it, it drove a number of different studies to be taken. And so there are a number of different studies being carried out across the world. For example, there was a study carried out in Argentina recently where they studied 500 people uh, in a controlled trial. There's also a study currently ongoing in the UK called the Principal Trial. All of those trials are looking to find out whether ivermectin is actually effective or not. Can it reduce severe illness? Can it help people recover when they're infected with SARS-CoV-2? And results from the Argentinian trial and the Brazilian trial have come out and both have shown, unfortunately, no impact of the drug. So the ivermectin was having no benefit on people. And in fact, one of the trials actually showed that if anything, it was increasing the likelihood of people to be put under uh, ventilation uh, if they were taking the drug. So not only was it not helping against SARS-CoV-2 infection, it was actually potentially causing more damage. The UK trial is still ongoing. We're expecting results by the end of the year. But, you know, based on all the trials done to this point, and when I talk about trials, I mean properly carried out random control trials. Um, no trial has shown any benefit 
uh, or any strong benefit for the use of ivermectin against this virus, unfortunately. It's almost like it's a case of something's too good to be true because what people are searching for is the holy grail or the silver bullet, a widely available cheap drug that would just act as a wonder cure for COVID. But it doesn't look like this is the drug. Yeah, unfortunately, I think we're, we, we live in an era where we're, we have readily, ready access to antibiotics and antibiotics are wonder drugs. We get sick, we get a sore throat, we get a sore ear, whatever it is, we take a few pills and boom, the disease is gone. And I think... Uh, I think we're we're looking for that with SARS-CoV-2. And in fact, we would love it for pretty much any virus that's out there. Unfortunately, viruses are not quite as easily uh, targeted by drugs. It's very difficult to identify a drug that will effectively block a virus really early in the infection. There are some drugs, of course, that have been found to be effective and protect or at least reduce the impact of severe illness. But those drugs tend not to be what we would term antivirals. They tend to be drugs that trying to control the inflammatory response of the of the body. So if you imagine, it's a kind of a two-stage process, COVID-19. You get infected by the virus. The virus will trigger an immune response in the body, and it will cause damage to areas such as the lungs and potentially other organs in the body. But long-term, really what causes damage is the inflammatory response of the body actually getting out of control. And so a lot of drugs are very effectively used in severe cases to try and control that inflammatory response. And there have been some drugs trialed, things like remdesivir, for example, um, that are known to be antiviral and at least, again, similar in a way to ivermectin in the laboratory are very effective against the virus. But when you put them into the context of a severely ill patient, their impact is very limited unfortunately. Now, potentially, if they were to be used prophylactically, so before the infection, or even very early on in the infection, they might actually have a benefit. But of course, it's hard to target exactly when to do that and when to identify. But trials are ongoing. And, you know, there are lots of other drugs that are being investigated, Um, not only new drugs, but also trying to repurpose other cheap, readily available drugs that might hopefully uh, have an impact in the near future. We got wind of something the other day, a crazy notion that animal supply stores have had a run on horse wormer lately. If you have horses, you know, twice a year, every spring and fall, you gotta put that tube in the paste back in the mouth, right? Keeps the baby- We've heard reports that there are people who can't access ivermectin for humans, both in Ireland and the US, who are using the animal version of the drug. What kind of risks does that pose? Well, you know, it's a it's a real problem. So dosage is a is a really big issue with ivermectin. So ivermectin is known to be safe when used correctly in humans. Um, it's also known to be safe when it's used correctly in animals. But a lot of the time, the amount of drug used in, say, a cow, for example, compared to the amount that should be used in a human is dramatically different. So an, a, an animal such as a cow is far greater than a human, obviously somewhere in the region of seven or 800 kilograms in weight. And so the amount of drug you need to use is far greater and typically in a much more concentrated fashion than would be applicable to a human. So if somebody is going to use ivermectin, they have to use it in the correct dosage. And if they're going to a farm shop or a veterinary practice and using the veterinary equivalent, um, then there's a really high potential for um, using a far too high a dose that can be really toxic to the body and can cause a lot of problems. And finally, Gerald, do you have a sense as to why so many people might be clinging to this drug, might be willing to take this drug at the expense of taking a vaccine 
which has clearly been shown to be effective and safe and free. I, th- I think this is a really challenging one to answer. And I think if we could answer it really clearly, then um, we could potentially address it very clearly and, and logically as well. It is sometimes hard to understand why people will, um, I suppose, turn against or turn away from um, clear evidence that's been produced by a whole host of studies and turn towards something that doesn't seem to have any evidence to support its use at all. Of course, this, I suppose, you can look at a whole host of different conspiracy type theories that run amok on the Internet um, and why people get behind those and go against potentially more mainstream or or more evidence based answers to things. Um, I don't really have a full answer to it. I don't think anybody has a full answer to understand exactly the mentality behind it. And I suppose the only thing we can do is uh, using the kind of the, the medical term, we can we can try and inoculate people with proper evidence and inoculate and, and impress on people um, why it's important to use an evidence based approach to these things and and support them in trying to understand what the evidence or lack of evidence is. And, and hopefully by doing that, encourage them to, in effect, make up their own mind using that evidence and, and support, I suppose, the use of drugs in a proper way that's not going to damage their health and actually might benefit them in the long run against, you know, SARS-CoV-2 or actually any, any kind of infection that you can think of. Coming up, the ivermectin frenzy sweeping across the United States. Nick Robbins-Early is a journalist based in New York, and he's been looking into the surge in demand for ivermectin across the US. Nick, from your research, who are the people most likely to turn to this as an alternative treatment for COVID? Well, I think it's important to note that a lot of the people turning to this are vulnerable and desperate people who don't really have access to other healthcare options. And so looking in Facebook groups, looking in Telegram groups where people were talking about this, a lot of people were talking about oh, you know, my, my family member, my loved one is in the hospital, I, I have to get ivermectin for them. Or they were personally worried about getting COVID because people at their job or, or workplace had COVID. And so they started talking about, well, I need this as a, as a prophylactic. I need this to prevent myself getting COVID. And who's pushing this narrative? Who's behind all of these viral videos and these Facebook groups suggesting that ivermectin works as a treatment for COVID? So I think there's probably three main categories that you can break this down into. One is is that there are medical activist groups which have been pushing this drug for over a year now. Well, a lot of the resistance to ivermectin is because there are a lot of people that don't want COVID to go away. They're making far too much money out of it. And they've been saying, look, we have been, you know, conducting this research or we've been looking at the evidence and and we think that this works. And they have been promoting this all over media. They've been appearing on different YouTube videos and, and putting out statements. They've been lobbying governments. They carry the imprimatur of having actual doctors on staff. And they are seen as a more legitimate version of, of what is pushing this drug. I think that patients' best interest should always be put first. And if we have a safe drug that we have huge amounts of experience using, we should be offering that to patients right away. So that is one category. The second category is that there are 
outright anti-vaccine groups who have seized upon ivermectin to say, you don't need vaccines, you can just take this drug. It works wonders, and it fits very well into their sort of anti-vaccine narrative that these vaccines are evil or bad or pushed by bad people. And finally, I think that there are groups that are looking to profit off of this. There are a lot of, in the U.S., telemedicine and online health providers who have begun marketing this very extensively, and some have connections to right-wing fringe groups, uh, some have connections just to uh, online pharmacies that, that sell this drug, and there is a financial aspect to this too, um, but it's sort of a confluence of all three of those groups, and that has really pushed things into the mainstream with the help, it should be said, of you know some prominent media figures, some prominent politicians that have amplified what these groups have been saying for about you know a year now. And who are the people, who are the well-known people or the influential voices championing ivermectin? Well, uh, you know, there are some people from these advocacy groups who have appeared on major podcasts and in Senate hearings. One way that this sort of blew up last year was that there's a senator in the United States, Ron Johnson, who has expressed vaccine hesitant views and questioned vaccine safety. Just because the vaccine is generally safe doesn't mean that it's 100 percent safe. Uh, and he told week, a hearing last year in which he brought on one of these medical advocates, Dr. Pierre Corey. Dr. Pierre Corey gave this testimony, which then became a viral YouTube video saying everyone should use ivermectin. It's the solution to COVID. There is a drug that is proving to be of miraculous impact. And when I say miracle, I do not use that term lightly. And Once I that went on YouTube, it became viewed hundreds of thousands, millions of times. It was actually later removed for violating YouTube's policies on COVID information. It basically obliterates transmission of this virus. If you take it, you will not get sick. I want to briefly... But that sort of created this buzz around the drug and people who like to present, you know, uh, alternative medical treatments or like to seize upon viral trends began promoting it. One major person in the United States was uh, the podcaster Joe Rogan. So this is the first of, I've never had to do an emergency podcast before, but it, I feel like we do. And, and Joe Rogan's podcast is, is just massive. It's, it's the top rated podcast. He reaches millions and millions of people and he had, Pierre Corey on as a guest. First of all, uh, Dr. Corey, please explain who you are and introduce yourself. Yes, yeah, sure. So I'm a lung and ICU specialist um, who's part of a group of... Um, they discussed ivermectin and they also framed it in a way that ivermectin was somehow being suppressed or hidden or censored from people, which gives it this sort of illicit sense that people, you know, aren't allowed to know about it. Their objective is to not have ivermectin adopted worldwide. The, ivermectin is seen as an opponent to whatever policies they're trying, whatever policies or product or pharmaceutical products they want to bring forward. Now, does this of, of course, it's it's been taken and it's been, it's been discussed for years now. People do know about it. There is research on it. But when it's presented as this sort of, you know, uh, illicit secret that is being hidden from you, that gives it this sort of cachet. And in the months after Joe Rogan's podcast, prescriptions for it in the United States ballooned. There was, I believe, in one week in August, 88,000 prescriptions for it alone. Um, so 
that podcast really amplified the drug and the people advocating for the drug, and it became a huge deal for a lot of people in the United States. And of course, Joe Rogan then famously got COVID. He did get COVID, yes. And then he reported once he got COVID uh, that he had been taking a, a cocktail of drugs, but uh, drugs that included ivermectin. Well, well, it is well. an old horseworm Rogan. <laughs> I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're well, man. Bro, do I have to sue CNN? I don't know. I don't know. Do you? They're making shit up. They keep saying I'm taking horse dewormer. I literally got it from a doctor. It's a, that led to a whole secondary news cycle of, well, you know, Joe Rogan is now treating his COVID with ivermectin, and and that boosted the drugs profile even more. And how is it possible that medicine and in particular, ivermectin has become so central to a broader cultural war that sometimes appears to be tearing America apart. Yeah, I, I think that it's very detrimental to medical research and the medical community for drugs like these to become so politicized because then when uh, a drug does come out that becomes part of this culture war, becomes a conservative rallying point, for instance, Anybody who pushes back against it gets labeled as, you know, a, a liberal or somebody who hates Trump or somebody who is just speaking out against it because of political reasons. And I think that there's an increasing tendency in the United States to take any flashpoint and turn it into a politicized issue. And that doesn't exclude medicine. And we've seen throughout the pandemic that whether it's, you know, policies over lockdowns, policies over mask wearing, these alternative drugs different groups have latched onto them and fit them into this narrative of a culture war in ways that have have tainted any legitimate discussion of the drug because all of a sudden to say something for or against any sort of treatment or policy is to immediately be slotted into a pre-existing political battle. I suppose a very basic question here is what are the consequences of people using ivermectin? Have we seen an increase in hospitalizations? Are people getting sicker because they're using it? There has been some people who have taken veterinary ivermectin and gotten sick. There has been uh, lawsuits launched against hospitals or doctors who won't prescribe it. From doctors who I talk to, I think that the, the most concerning one that they have is that while this drug doesn't have any compelling evidence that it works, a lot of people are putting a lot of faith in it, and it's giving them a lot of sense of false security. And so we have vaccines. The vaccines are safe and effective. But if you believe that this is an alternative that you can take to the vaccines, then you're, you know, potentially putting your your life at risk. You're, you're potentially putting others at risk because you're giving your sense of false security to this drug. And that could mean that people who take it but don't get the vaccine end up getting COVID. And that is just a a huge risk that is unnecessary in a country where vaccines are, are readily available. Thanks very much for talking to us, Nick. Thank you. That was Nick Robbins Early and Dr. Gerald Barry. In the News will be back next week and we'll be bringing you the first in our series of episodes dedicated to the climate crisis. As you may know, at the end of October, the 26th UN Climate Change Conference will take place in Glasgow, and in the weeks leading up to it, we'll be doing our best to bring the conversation on climate to the forefront, so please do take a listen. That's all for today. Have a great weekend.